Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around, a watch she can wear every day from Movement. Whether your mom is into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, everything at Movement is up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale. A watch is a gift that celebrates all the time you spent with mom. And a Movement watch is even more than that. Movement uses industry-leading materials for their fresh modern watch designs, from technically complex ceramics to vintage-inspired style, all for an incredible value your wrist and wallet will both love. And with one-size-fits-all convenience and fast-free shipping and returns, it's a stress-free shopping experience. Save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with Movement. Get up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. Everyone knows the story. In the wee hours of July 11th, 1804, Alexander Hamilton, lawyer, constitutional framer, Federalist Papers author, former Secretary of the Treasury, and etc., 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 and Aaron Burr, the sitting Vice President of the United States, rode separate boats across the Hudson River from Manhattan to Weehawken, New Jersey. When they arrived, their companions cleared a spot in the brush, then stood back to back and marched out 10 paces. The men marked these positions, and after some other formalities, gave these spots over to Hamilton and Burr. Hamilton faced out over the cliffs of the New Jersey Palisades where they stood, facing Manhattan and the rising sun. The light was bright, and he asked for his glasses, then tested his eyesight by taking a practice aim with the dueling pistol in his hand. One of their companions, Hamilton's colleague Nathaniel Pendleton, asked if the men were ready. They indicated that they were. After a moment, Pendleton shouted, Present! Within seconds, both men raised their pistols and fired, each gun flashing as it discharged. The explosions separated only by a second or two. Hamilton's shot flew harmlessly into a tree far above Burr's head, but Burr's shot crashed through Hamilton's body, breaking two of his ribs and causing massive internal injuries. Hamilton collapsed and declared, I am a dead man. 31 hours later, Alexander Hamilton died of his wounds. Undoubtedly, the Hamilton-Burr duel is the most famous duel in American history, especially after Lin-Manuel Miranda's musical Hamilton became a cultural phenomenon. But in some ways, the Hamilton-Burr duel is an anomaly in the history of dueling and political violence in the first half of the 19th century. Both Hamilton and Burr were Northerners, both New Yorkers, and in short order, dueling, as well as hot-headed violence in general, would become acts associated with Southerners, not Northerners. Dueling was illegal in New York City. That's why Hamilton and Burr sought the wilder shores of New Jersey as a dueling spot. Everything's legal in New Jersey. That's where Atlantic City is, right? Yes. So then, yes, you're right. 
But that didn't mean honor violence was unheard of in the North. After all, that very spot in the Palisades was the site of at least 18 other duels. But over the course of the first half of the century, northern men, especially politicians, increasingly distanced themselves from violence as a way to protect one's honor or advance one's political ends. Southerners, on the other hand, prided themselves on their manly embrace of bloody defense of honor. Duels seem crazy to us today. Two men turn and face each other, standing stock still while another man is allowed to shoot at them in an act with strict rules and regulations. I mean, there was an entire book, the Code Duello, that dictated when, how, and under what circumstances duels should take place. But while it's easy to think of duels as simply evidence of a more violent age, dueling and other similar forms of violence offers an important window into the political, racial, and cultural history of the early 19th century. Duels weren't just about shooting at a guy you disliked. They were about masculinity, slavery, race, politics, honor, class status, and the sectional crisis. Today, we're talking about all of this and about dueling and political violence in the first half of the 19th century. I'm Sarah. And I'm Avril. And we are your historians for this episode of Dig. Listeners, we have an exciting opportunity for you. It's not a Ponzi scheme. No. (laughs) (laughs) It's not mid-level marketing, we promise. Even though that pitch certainly sounded like it. It sounded like it. Uh, We're part of the Himalaya app now. This is a space where you can listen to all your favorite podcasts. And for shows like ours, you can become a member of our community. Not a mid-level marketing community, just a regular community. (laughs) For less than $3 a month. Oh, God, I just, I can't stop hearing where it sounds like a It really does. Yeah. (laughs) You'll get access to the back catalog of all of our episodes ad-free. You don't have to sell them to anyone else, though. We'll also be sharing some exclusive content with our members in the near future. So download the Himalaya app and make it your go-to for all things podcast. We also want to be sure to thank all of our Patreon supporters, especially our Augur and Excavator level patrons. Eric, Maddie, Colin, Susan, Christopher, Peggy, Danielle, Anne, Maggie, Iris... Though your numbers grow every month, each and every one of you is a miracle to us. Thank you for thinking us worthy of your generous support. We love you so very much. While Hamilton the Musical has certainly made the story of the Hamilton-Burr duel more widely known, it has, in some ways, changed its meaning, too. The musical presents the duel as the culmination of a friendship-turned-rivalry that has gone sour over a long period of time, a conflict between men with strikingly oppositional characters and temperaments. In some ways, that is true. Burr was the only son of very religious parents and the grandson of the famous preacher Jonathan Edwards, of sinners in the hands of an angry god fame. More or less, Burr's entire family, both of his parents and his grandparents, died in 1757 and 1758 when he was a very small child. Burr was an orphan raised first by Dr. William Shippen of Philadelphia, who, by the way, one of the first male OBGYNs in the United States. Isn't that interesting? Um, And then later, he was raised by his uh, mother's brother, Timothy Edwards. It was a very religious upbringing, deeply informed by his grandfather's fire and brimstone faith. 
It was also a fairly privileged upbringing. When Burr was old enough, he was the beneficiary of a sizable inheritance from his father's estate, designated for his education. Burr attended the College of New Jersey, now known as Princeton, where his grandfather, Jonathan Edwards, the preacher, had served as president. On the other hand, Hamilton, famously, was a bastard. His mother, Rachel, had fled her abusive Danish husband, and his father, James, was the son of a Scottish laird seeking his fortune in St. Kitts. And just a side note here that I think is important, there are two kind of very popular, widely held myths about Hamilton's childhood. One is that his mother was biracial or perhaps black, and that his mother was a sex worker, uh, his biographer, Ron Chernow, says that neither of those are supported by any evidence. So just, you know, get those out of your brain right now. Um, Hamilton's father, James, abandoned his family sometime in 1765. Hamilton's mother died not that long after, likely um, while Hamilton was at her side suffering from the same mysterious disease. He and his brother were raised by a cousin and each worked from a young age. Hamilton, as we all know, was a hustler, a self-educated and self-made man. The scion of famous New England blue bloods versus the upstart bastard immigrant from the Caribbean. I mean, they certainly do make for what seems like a natural rivalry. Their life stories really are remarkable and it's really not surprising that they lend themselves so well to a musical. But it's also easy to lose track of the fact that the duel was a political conflict. Burr and Hamilton had indeed known each other for a long time. Their paths had crossed first before the revolution, then again when they both served as officers during the war, and then again during their early legal and political careers in New York. Then they both went on to hold national offices. Hamilton was George Washington's Secretary of the Treasury, and later Burr served as Thomas Jefferson's Vice President. But by 1804, not only were both men beginning to age, they were both without political power. Hamilton's chances at political office had been seriously damaged by his decision to publish the so-called Reynolds Pamphlet, his explanation of his affair with the married Mariah Reynolds. And Burr had run for president in 1800, but came in second, which in 1800 still meant that he became vice president, but was so hated by President Thomas Jefferson that he was essentially a powerless figurehead, much like our vice presidency today. Yeah, I mean, not super, you know, different. Right. But at the same time, Thomas Jefferson, like... Unless you're Tom, unless but you're Thomas Cheney. Jefferson actually like actively hated Aaron Burr and was like, "Get out of here! We don't even want to talk to you." Do you think he like put scorpions in his bed? Probably not. But, but he that thought would be about great. it. He thought that would about be it. So good. Yeah. So these were two men in 1804 who were used to wielding political power and trying to find roles from the, for themselves in their new, less powerful lives. Burr was a Democratic Republican, which meant that he was a member of Thomas Jefferson's party. Hamilton, on the other hand, was a Federalist. If anyone was Hamilton's sworn enemy, it wasn't actually Aaron Burr. It was Thomas Jefferson. Diametrically opposed in nearly every possible political way, Hamilton and Jefferson had nearly clawed each other's eyes out during their time serving on Washington's cabinet. But the election of 1800 changed that calculation a bit. 
Thomas Jefferson ran against John Adams, a member of Hamilton's own Federalist Party. But Hamilton hated John Adams, too. I mean, Hamilton just... He's an irascible fellow. <laughs> he hated lots of people. Um, and he, he also hated John Adams. He wrote a lengthy pamphlet full of bitter criticisms about John Adams, which ended, you know, in a sort of pathetic, eh, you know, here's all my criticisms of him, but I guess I'll vote for him anyway because he's a Federalist. And then he mailed it to all of his fellow Federalists. Unsurprisingly, this pamphlet was published and further destroyed Hamilton's political career. The Democratic-Republicans won the election. Burr and Jefferson ended up with an electoral tie. This put the decision over the presidency in the hands of the House of Representatives, which meant Federalists, as well as Democratic-Republicans, would have to vote for one of the two Democratic-Republican candidates. To Hamilton, a Jefferson presidency would be bad, but a Burr presidency would be a disaster. Burr, he wrote, was, quote, bankrupt beyond redemption, except by the plunder of his country. His public principles have no other spring or aim than his own aggrandizement. And if he can, he will certainly disturb our institutions to secure himself permanent power and wealth. He is truly the Catiline of America. Hamilton's reference to Catiline, an immoral, treacherous, and conspiratorial Roman senator who tried to overthrow the Roman Republic, was pretty telling. Hamilton wrote to fellow Federalists trying to turn them against Burr and toward Jefferson, which was actually quite a feat considering how much shit he'd said about Jefferson over the years. In the end, the vote went very narrowly to Jefferson, making Burr vice president. It's not clear that Hamilton's letter-writing campaign was the reason Burr lost, but it certainly played a role. But Burr didn't disappear after his electoral loss. He was vice president, sure, but Jefferson distrusted him and elbowed him out of any real power, and it was obvious he wouldn't join Jefferson on the ticket for re-election. At the time... I'm going to pause there to say... That might be confusing if you aren't familiar with, with um, this period of American politics, but they changed the law between the 1800 and 1804 elections so that it's no longer the runner-up who becomes vice president. That's why Burr knew he wasn't going to be on the ticket mm. because that they had changed it so that you would have a running mate, which was not the case before. Good to know. At the same time, the governor of New York, George Clinton, seemed to be on his way out. So Burr turned his sights on New York as the site of his political comeback. Political newspapers began to dig back into Hamilton's old diatribes against Burr, with one even publishing his comparison to Catiline. Probably in an effort to sell papers, James Cheatham, editor of the American Citizen newspaper, even wrote editorials trying to get Hamilton and Burr to address each other on their beef publicly. So to Hamilton, Cheatham wrote, quote, Yes, sir. I dare assert that you attributed to Aaron Burr one of the most atrocious and unprincipled crimes. He has not called upon you. Either he is guilty or he is the most mean and despicable bastard in the universe. I like your transatlantic Was that, was that pretty good? There. Yeah. That was pretty good. I feel it was 1804. <laughs> <laughs> he goaded Burr about why he didn't fight back against Hamilton's allegations, asking if he really was so degraded as to permit even General Hamilton to slander him with impunity. 
Later, the American citizen declared that Hamilton opposed Burr because he had no principle, either in moral or in politics. Burr's reputation was on the line. And while Cheatham was the one calling him out, it was with Hamilton's insults. And Hamilton's acerbic criticisms were, maybe anyway, what cost him the presidency back in 1800. Now they might be costing Burr the governorship and his political comeback. Burr sued the citizen for libel, but they didn't let up on their criticisms, even accusing him of sexual impropriety. Without real evidence, Burr believed that these scandalous claims came from Hamilton and were designed to tank his political career. And unsurprisingly, Burr lost the election in April 1804, the the gubernatorial election. Now, let me quote historian Ron Chernow here. Burr developed a, quote, murderous rage against Hamilton. In his eyes, Hamilton had blocked his path to the presidency by supporting Jefferson in 1801. Now Hamilton had blocked his path to the New York governorship. Alexander Hamilton was a curse, a hypocrite, the author of all of his misery. And that is how Aaron Burr saw things in the spring of 1804. So when, in April 1804, after the vote, the Albany Register published a letter by someone who had had dinner with Hamilton in March, testifying that Hamilton had vented his spleen about Burr and his desire to see his campaign fail, Aaron Burr hit the roof. After this initial publication, when the letter's veracity was questioned, the author of the letter confirmed that it was entirely true. And indeed, it was true. Burr didn't receive a copy of the newspaper until mid-June, but when he did, the account confirmed everything he already, in his post-defeat bitterness and paranoia, believed about Hamilton. On the very same day that he received the newspaper, Burr conferred with his friend, William Van Ness, who would later serve as his second at Weehawken, about his next steps. They drafted a letter, which Van Ness hand-delivered to Hamilton's office. The letter itself is pretty brief, but but Hamilton correctly interpreted it as a call to the carpet. Burr was asking him to answer for his words in an affair of honor. Hamilton wrote back in typical Hamiltonian style an exasperated letter and poked at Burr, asking that, quote, If Mr. Burr would refer to any particular expressions, he would recognize or disavow them. In other words, okay, sure, I don't like you, but what specifically are you saying I said? He and Burr exchanged several more letters, each escalating with the the situation slightly. And yes, each ending with, I have the honor to be your obedient servant, which seems to be like early American speak for, go f*** yourself, dickwad. Hamilton would not apologize or deny his statements, and Burr wouldn't let it go. On June 27th, Van Ness delivered a formal dual request to Hamilton's friend and second, Nathaniel Pendleton. Hamilton asked for two weeks to get his affairs in order, but agreed to the duel. And then we know where things went from there. So, what we see in this duel very early in the 19th century is a story of slow simmering, but gradually escalating, political anger. Hamilton and Burr were opposed in a great number of ways, but if we're looking just at their personal lives and histories, they also had a lot in common. It was their political careers, ambitions, and beliefs that ultimately brought them to that clearing on the New Jersey Palisades. And according to historian and fellow podcaster Joanne Freeman, 
This was typical of duels in this era of American politics. Rather than the explosive result of rash decision-making or an angry exchange, duels tended to be the result of political maneuvering. Politicians, according to Freeman, quote, timed them strategically, sometimes provoked them deliberately to achieve political ends. Indeed, she argues, politicians were, quote, men of public duty and private ambition who identified so closely with their public roles that they often could not distinguish between their identity as gentlemen and their status as political leaders. The Hamilton-Burr affair also shows that during the early 19th century, Northerners also sometimes resorted to duels to deal with political disputes. Hamilton, Freeman found, was involved in 10 affairs of honor, although they were all settled before they came to pistols at dawn. And in New York City, 16 affairs of honor occurred between 1795 and 1807, including a duel in which Hamilton's own son, Philip, died although most of them did not escalate to deadly violence. Northerners sometimes felt torn about participating in duels, worrying that they might be disgraced and debased by the violent act, but at the same time, feeling they often had no better alternative when the insult was particularly bad. Nearly all men, at least all men who moved in political circles in the upper echelons of society, men who had public reputations, spoke the language of honor. We saw in the Hamilton-Burr duel that the affair escalated through an exchange of words, beginning with the initial insults, Cheatham's reports of Hamilton's subterfuge against Burr in the election of 1800, through Cooper's letter, then Hamilton and Burr's words to each other in their letters. Each man used particular phrases that they knew that the other would recognize as part of the language of honor. Take, for instance, another exchange between Alexander Hamilton and James Monroe. When Hamilton was accused by shit-stirring newspaper editor James Callender of stealing money from the Treasury while Secretary of the Treasury, Hamilton was certain that it was Monroe who had been feeding rumors to Callender. Hamilton marched over to Monroe, and when Monroe professed his innocence in the affair, Hamilton seethes, this as your representation is totally false. Monroe re retorted, you say I represented falsely. You are a scoundrel. Should be a southern accent. <laughs> oh, he's, he's from south, the south? Yeah, James Monroe is Virginianer. I know nothing. A Virginianer, a Virginian. Just a Virginian, I think. I do know that. Monroe retorted, you say I represented falsely. You are a scoundrel. Oh, my God. I think that's correct. Yeah, that sounds much better. I don't know if Monroe was quite that. He was very debonair. He had a drawl. <laughs> Hamilton responded, I will meet you like a gentleman. I think he's a cowboy. Pow, pow, pow. Pretty sure he wasn't. He's a New Yorker. <laughs> no, same thing. Monroe told Hamilton to get his pistols, and then the men's friends intervened, pulled the men apart, and the affair ended there. Even though it didn't end in shots fired, it still followed the set shared language of honor. Hamilton extended an accusation that Monroe was a liar, that Monroe had represented falsely. Monroe had responded to the accusation by one-upping Hamilton's insult, calling him a <gasps> scoundrel. 
Hamilton then told Monroe that he would meet him like a gentleman, meaning that he was prepared to follow up his words with actions. Monroe accepted the offer by telling Hamilton to get his dueling pistols, telling Hamilton he was also perfectly prepared to follow up words with actions. Duels followed very specific rules, starting with the wordplay that Hamilton and Monroe engaged in. Each understood their own role in the script and understood the implications of their opponent's lines. Sometimes, like in the Hamilton-Burr affair, this took place in letters and involved friends and seconds. But in others, like Hamilton's argument with Monroe, it happened fast and in person. In many cases, that exchange was enough to satisfy the aggrieved party. For instance, Hamilton was pulled away by his friend and did not shoot James Monroe, which is good because we wouldn't have had our fifth president. There were even rules regarding weaponry, which party got to choose the weapons, what kinds of weapons, and how they were used. The type of insult and the social standing of each party factored into the weapons and the nature of the exchange. Pistols at dawn was fine between social equals, but one did not meet a man with a lesser reputation or social standing on a field of honor. Those men usually got a beating, typically with a heavy stick or a cane. But in reality, most men did not enter into an affair of honor at all with the intention to resort to any violence. The key was that you had to make it very clear by word and deed that you were ready and willing to resort to violence. Otherwise, you had no business initiating an affair of honor. One of the most famous affairs of the early republic, at least at the time, was between Congressman Matthew Lyon of Vermont and Roger Griswold of Connecticut. I know, a Vermonter. A dueling Vermonter. I know, isn't that interesting? We would never... Lyon had insulted the Connecticut delegation in a private conversation on the House floor, which Griswold, who was from Connecticut, overheard. Pissed, Griswold flung an insult at Lyon, referring to some old accusations of cowardice from the Revolutionary War. Lyon didn't take the bait, so Griswold walked up, grabbed the man's arm, and said the insult again to his face. This time, Lyon did react by spitting in Griswold's face. But then Griswold let the Speaker of the House intervene, allowing the House to vote on whether or not to expel Lyon. James Madison, reflecting on the whole sordid event after the fact, concluded that Griswold had dishonored himself, even though he had called Lyon out and confronted him on the House floor, which is what you would expect in this kind of, you know, affair of honor. He, Griswold, had started this whole thing by issuing the first insult, but then he had backed off, letting the Speaker and the rest of the House to decide what to do with Lyon. A, quote, man of the sword, Madison wrote, would have taken care of business himself. Quote, no man ought to reproach another with cowardice who is not ready to give proof of his own courage. And... Just to just to make it clear here, it's not as though Griswold didn't use violence because after he like steps aside to let the Speaker of the House step in, he um, then grabbed a hickory walking stick. And when it was clear that the Speaker of the House wasn't going to kick Lion out, he went over and attacked Lion and was like beating the snot out of him with this hickory walking stick. And then Lion like ran behind the Speaker's chair and grabbed a pair of like really heavy metal fireplace tongs and he was like fighting back with the tongs this is all happening on the floor of congress all very dramatic it's very british of them yeah 
While honor continued to be vital to be a vital part of both northern and southern manhood, the two increasingly began to diverge. We talked about this a lot in Sarah's episode a while back about manhood during the Civil War era. After the religious revival of the Second Great Awakening, northern men came to understand restraint and self-control as a source of honor. On the other hand, southern men doubled down on honor, honor. In other words, the maintenance and protection of reputation became critical at all costs. Northern men, who were already a little torn when it came to affairs of honor, distanced themselves even more from dueling. It seemed so uncontrolled, so rash and impetuous. All things northern men should not be. But antebellum antebellum politics, nevertheless, acted on men in ways they found difficult, even impossible to resist. Take, for instance, the Silly Graves Affair of 1838. In earlier duels, we saw that they involved clear and personal stakes for the men involved. This wasn't the case in the altercation between Maine Congressman Jonathan Silly and William J. Graves of Kentucky. Both Silly and Graves had reputations as pleasant men. Joanne Freeman calls them pleasantly conventional. They were both handsome and gentlemanly, and while Silly was known to be shrewd and fierce, they were both pretty average congressmen, and neither were inclined to hot-headedness or violence. And they didn't really have anything against each other personally. But then in 1838, when the Whig newspaper, the New York Courier and Inquirer, published an allegation that an unnamed Democratic congressman was corrupt. The political winds blew them into each other's path. Democratic Congressman Henry Wise was livid and read the allegations out loud on the floor of the House and insisted that Congress investigate. Silly objected and dismissed the veracity of the account. Silly and Wise sneered back and forth at each other in the language of the affair of honor. Then, James Watson Webb, the editor of the Whig newspaper, the one that had published that account, arrived on the scene in Washington. Webb wanted Silly to answer for accusing the newspaper of printing false allegations when he had objected to Wise's, you know, statement on the floor. Plus, apparently Webb had some other access to grind in Washington. Either way, he approached his friend, William Graves, and asked him to deliver a letter to Silly, inviting him to a duel with with Webb. But then, when Graves tried to give the letter to Silly, Silly correctly surmised what the letter was and refused to take it. The two men stared at each other for a little while because neither knew exactly what they should do next. They even apologized to each other, Um, And Silly reassured Graves that by not taking the letter, he meant no disrespect. But something had to happen, and neither was well-versed enough in the rules of the duel to know exactly what that was. So each man went out and consulted with friends and colleagues about what the next step in the conflict should be in order for them to follow the correct steps of the, you know, the, the language of honor. After much consultation, each realized that a duel was necessary, but not between Silly and Webb, between Silly and Graves. By the rules of honor, Silly had insulted Graves by refusing to take the letter, and having already refused Webb, he couldn't refuse Graves without looking like a coward. Graves couldn't let Silly's insult stand. 
So a vague allegation in a New York City newspaper about an unnamed Democratic senator had created a situation where congressmen from Maine and Kentucky had little choice but to fight a duel. And so they did. On February 24th, 1838, the two met in Bladensburg, Maryland, and shot at each other three times with rifles. Graves hit Silly in the thigh with the third shot, severing his femoral artery, and the main congressman bled out in just a few minutes. If you know anything about antebellum American history, which you do not, which I do not, <laughs> you know that politics and, well, everything else become, became progressively tenser and more fraught in the 1850s. Anger and violence always seem to be simmering just under the surface in federal politics. But the nature of this violence changed a little bit. According to historian Joanne Freeman, northern politicians, whose manhood was derived more from restraint than intemperate action, grew sick of being bullied by hot-headed southerners. Southerners always seemed to dominate the room, so to speak, when it came to the central issue of antebellum politics, slavery. And northern politicians were sick of it. For instance, several times during the 1830s and 1840s, Southern politicians successfully established gag rules in Congress that attempted to stop any petitions related to slavery from being discussed in the House. American abolitionism was growing. For instance, the American Anti-Slavery Society, led by radical William Lloyd Garrison, was founded in 1833, which was the year that uh, slavery was abolished in the Caribbean. That's right. And anti-slavery politicians were trying to introduce anti-slavery petitions for discussion to bring the issue to the fore, sometimes introducing hundreds of petitions in a single day. In response, Southern congressmen passed a series of gag rules that made it impossible to bring such petitions to the floor. But anti-slavery Northerners were determined to circumvent the rules, and no one was more committed to creating gag rule chaos than John Quincy Adams, who, it seems, had zero f**ks left to give. Adams was elected to Congress after losing his election for a second term of his presidency to Andrew Jackson, and so was not in a very generous mood. Right. No, he gets there and he's pretty much like, let's f**k it up. <laughs> Burn it down, baby. Yeah, pretty much. He's, he's such a great character. To anti-slavery northerners like Adams, the gag rule was the purest, most evil manifestation of something they called the slave power conspiracy, or the idea that southern slaveholders wielded massive political power in the United States and were thus able to bend the machinations of the American government to protect slavery, no matter what northerners did. And while that sounds very, well, conspiratorial... They weren't wrong. <laughs> Southerners did have tremendous power, especially in Congress. And if they wanted to pass rules saying that no one could discuss slavery, they had the power to do so. But this drove men like Adams nuts. And he was not about to let the slave power push Northerners around without a fight. As a Northern man, Adams also wasn't about to resort to violence. But he was ready to fight with words and deeds. And did Adams know just which buttons to push? He used his exquisite knowledge of the rules of order to interrupt his pro-slavery colleagues to death with calls to order and ate up their time with boring, filibustery speeches. 
when a fellow Northerner, Joshua Giddings, delivered an anti-slavery speech that sent Southern congressmen into literal fits, Adams knew how to twist the knife by sitting back and laughing uproariously at their conniptions. I would like to deliver a filibuster someday. Yeah, you'd be good at it. I would tell the story of my life. It would be very boring. Adam's use of laughter is really interesting. Southerners understood any attempt to get around or circumvent the gag rule, in other words, any discussion of slavery, as an attack. So when it happened, they reacted the way an insulted man would in an affair of honor, with deep, self-righteous offense. Adams, rather than indulge them by acknowledging the legitimacy of any offense, essentially laughed in their faces, adding another layer of offense without lifting a finger. Laughter also enraged the fussy congressmen because it mocked their histronics as ridiculous, poking a hole in the carefully constructed mask of honor in which southern men cocooned themselves. While the concept of honor certainly continued to be important for both northern and southern men, the southern version almost intensified during the antebellum for the same reasons Adams and his southern colleagues clashed over the gag rule, slavery. Slavery affected every single facet of southern life and culture. Every action and interaction was informed by the existence and the maintenance of black chattel slavery. And, as we all know, the American institution of enslavement was founded on physical and psychological terror. Because of all this, white Southerners, particularly men but white women as well, were extremely adept at justifying slavery, mostly to themselves. One way they worked to do this was by creating these fictional worlds in which slavery had different meanings. Historian Stephanie McCurry has argued, for instance, that white Southern men created a reality in which they were, quote, masters of small worlds. White men, both wealthy slave owners and poor whites alike, believed themselves to be kind and charitable fathers in an enlarged family unit where everyone in the family unit relied on them and deferred to them as the head of household. This was all about perceptions. Everyone more or less understood that this was fictional, but no one could admit that it was fictional, lest the whole edifice of slavery as positive good disintegrate around their ears. What does this have to do with honor culture and dueling and political violence? Well, <laughs> Averill just whispered, nothing. I said everything. Oh. <laughs> Well, in order for that mastery to work, it has to be upheld by everyone, both inside and outside the family. If you're revealed, or to use a phrase from the, the period, unmasked the reality, it was admitting that things were not as they seemed. In this way, truth was actually irrelevant. The perception mattered more than the reality. This is why John Quincy Adams' laughter was so powerful and so infuriating to Southern congressmen. It pointed out the absurdity underlying their displays of honor. We'll give you two quick examples. We may have even used one of these examples before. It's super famous. Wealthy Southern lady Mary Boykin Chestnut, who wrote extensive diaries about the antebellum South and Civil War era, once remarked in her diary that, like the patriarchs of old, our men 
live in one, all in one house with their wives and concubines, and the mulattoes one sees in every family exactly the, resemble the white children. And every lady tells you who is the father of all the mulatto children in everybody's household but those in her own. She seems to think they drop from the clouds or pretends to think so. Why couldn't these women tell their husbands off and make it known that these children were the products of their husbands having sex with, likely raping, their enslaved women? Well, because to do so would be to give the lie, or to admit that everything was not as it seemed. To preserve the image, they needed to swallow hard and pretend everything was as lovely as it seemed, at least in their own households. Right. Here's the second example. Back in our episode about Civil War era manhood, we talked a lot about brawling or the culture of hard scrabble, no rules wrestling that existed largely in the backwoods areas of the American South. I think I mentioned then that dueling had a lot in common with brawling. They might seem very different. After all, dueling followed extremely careful rules and strictures, and brawling seemed to have no rules at all. But they shared one very important central truth. They each revolved around the fact that the men involved had bodily autonomy. If they wanted to put their own body at risk, whether from a sharp thumbnail grown out and honed so that they could effectively scoop out an eyeball, or from a bullet, that was entirely their choice. They owned their bodies. They owned their reputations. You know who did not have bodily autonomy? Enslaved men and women. This is one reason that historians have theorized that nose tweaking was so deeply offensive and could very quickly lead to a duel. It violated a man's personal space and bodily autonomy and effectively was saying to him that he was like a slave. What does that mean, black Republican puppies? Um, I was just going to interject that one of the, like, there was a couple things that could lead very quickly to a duel. Like, there were certain things that, like, were kind of like the Rubicon. Like, you, once you did that thing, it was, there was no going back. Like, it was dueling time. One was nose tweaking. The other was to hurl certain insults at someone. And one of the insults, at least by the time we get to the 1850s, is to call someone a black Republican puppy. And that was particularly, I mean, that was a very loaded phrase, obviously, because it was calling someone black, which, Mm -hmm. you know, has lots of connotations. Some of those connotations are that it's particularly egregious. Like, it's almost like a modifier. Like, if you say that it was, something was the blackest lie that you'd ever heard, it was like saying it was the worst lie you'd ever heard. But of course, it also would, in America, would call to mind race, right? Calling someone black. Republican was, you know, the, the there was a new Republican Party that was growing that was a threat to the South. And so if you a- accused a Southerner of being a black Republican puppy, it had this connotation of like, you're in on it with our enemies, right? And then to call someone a puppy was actually the worst because puppies were, they were adorable. But that's almost part of the problem, right? They're small, they're helpless, they... um they grovel, they want your attention, they lick your hand. They're pathetic. They're not men, right? Men are the opposite of a puppy. And so just like tweaking somebody's nose had all these layers of meaning about bodily autonomy and things like that, calling someone a black Republican puppy had all of these various meanings that was like 
that was those were fighting words. That was there was no coming back from calling someone a black Republican puppy. So as the slave society that was the American South grew and the culture dedicated to justifying and protecting slavery intensified over the antebellum era, Southern men clung even more tightly to that system of honor because slights to one's honor were a threat to the whole damn facade. This is where we come back to political violence. In 1856, anti-slavery Senator Charles Sumner delivered a speech that, in stunningly powerful language, poked through the veil Southern slaveholders had pulled around the peculiar institution. Sumner was railing against the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which had been signed into law two years earlier, in 1854. Another compromise in a long line of ill-fated compromises crafted in the hopes of controlling the explosive fight over the spread of slavery into the Western territories, the KNA had determined that the Kansas Territory could enter the Union as a state and that it could use a system of popular sovereignty or a vote to decide whether it would be a free state or a slave state. In the intervening years, Kansas had descended into violent chaos as both pro- and anti-slavery folks had packed the state in the hopes of influencing the eventual vote. The two groups were literally at each other's throats. To northern politicians, this looked transparently like another move orchestrated by the slave power, and Charles Sumner was roiling with anger about it. In May 1856, Sumner rose in the Senate and delivered a speech called The Crime Against Kansas, railing against the crimes Southern slaveholders perpetrated against the territory and the nation. He accused slaveholders of raping the virgin territory of Kansas. He specifically calls out the senators who had been vital to drafting the law, with special ire directed at Andrew Butler of South Carolina and Stephen Douglas of Illinois he of the Lincoln-Douglas debates, and James Mason of Virginia. Let us just quote from the speech. To set the scene, imagine the 45-year-old Charles Sumner standing on the Senate floor, a handsome, comparatively huge man standing six foot four inches tall. It was an impressive scene. Yes, he cut an impressive figure. Voices, please. I must say something of a general character, particularly in response to what has fallen from senators who have raised themselves to eminence on this floor in championship of human wrongs. I mean the senator from South Carolina, Mr. Butler, and the senator from Illinois, Mr. Douglas, who, though unlike as Don Quixote and Sancho Panza, yet like this couple sally forth together on the same adventure. I regret much to miss the elder senator from his seat, but the cause against which he has run a tilt with such activity of animosity demands that the opportunity of exposing him should not be lost, and it is for the cause that I speak. The senator from South Carolina has read many books of chivalry and believes himself a chivalrous knight with sentiments of honor and courage. Of course, he has chosen a mistress to whom he has made his vows and who, though ugly to others, is always lovely to him, though polluted in the sight of the world, is chaste in his sight. I mean the harlot, slavery. (laughs) 
For her, his tongue is always profuse in words. Let her be impeached in character or any proposition made to shut her out from the extension of her wantonness and no extravagance of manner or hardihood of assertion is then too great for the senator. The frenzy of Don Quixote in behalf of his wench Dulcinea del Toboso is all surpassed. The rights of slavery, which shook equality of all kinds, are cloaked by a fantastic claim of equality. If the slave states cannot enjoy what, in mockery of the great fathers of the republic, he misnames equality under the Constitution, in other words, the full power in the national territories to compel fellow men to unpaid toil, to separate husband and wife, and to sell little children at the auction block, then, sir, the chivalric senator will conduct the state of South Carolina out of the union. Heroic knight. Exalted Senator, a second Moses come for a second Exodus. So Sumner's insult was powerful. He compared Andrew Butler, a South Carolinian slaveholder, to the absurd and ridiculous Don Quixote. He said that all his language of honor and courage was little more than childish play acting. And then he said that Andrew Butler was a kind of slave himself, a slave to the harlot, the institution of slavery. He was the one who was slavish, doing anything he could, including debasing himself and the Republic to protect the honor of a quote-unquote woman who was inherently lacking honor. His references to rape also purposely called to mind the open secret of slave masters raping their enslaved women, something that we heard Mary Chestnut pointedly explain was not to be openly acknowledged. Them's, as they say, fighting words. It's not possible that Sumner didn't understand how impactful those words would be. He chose them purposely for their rhetorical power. Indeed, even though Sumner was a large man, his friends in the Senate asked him if they could escort him home to ensure he wasn't attacked in the street. Sumner refused. It's little wonder that after the speech, Southerners were irate and looking for retribution. But Douglas was a short Northerner. I mean, he wasn't going to physically assault the towering Sumner for his insults. And the aging Andrew Butler wasn't even present during the speech. Instead, it was Butler's relative, the South Carolina Congressman Preston Brooks, who felt compelled to take action. Brooks's friends told him that he had to do something to respond to the insult. But Brooks couldn't invite Sumner to duel. It wasn't just that Sumner would have refused, which he almost certainly would have, but that Brooks believed that Sumner was without honor, and one did not duel a man of lesser standing. Brooks wanted to send the message that Sumner was weak, unmanly, and utterly lacking honor. So on May 22nd, Preston Brooks entered the Senate chamber where Sumner sat preparing copies of the infamous speech to mail. Brooks waited until the coast was more or less clear, especially of ladies. There were some ladies in the chamber observing. He walked up to Sumner's desk and stated, Mr. Sumner, I read your speech with care and as much impartiality as was possible, and I felt it was my duty to tell you that you have libeled my state and slandered a relative who is aged and absent, and I have come to punish you for it. His buddy, Lawrence Kitt, who we also talked about in the Manhood episode, held off anyone trying to intervene. 
Brooks raised his thick, heavy gutta percha cane and began to beat the snot out of Charles Sumner. Sumner was effectively trapped by his heavy metal desk, which was bolted into the floor. Eventually, in a desperation to get away from the blows, Sumner wrenched the desk out of the floor. Whoa. That seems intense. It was intense. Yeah! While this on its face seemed in line with an honor exchange, it deviated in, in important ways. Brooks had beaten Sumner on the Senate floor in a premeditated attack. While there had been other fights on the floor of Congress, they were always spontaneous. To attack a man while he sat, and sat in that hallowed chamber, was inappropriate. He had also beaten Sumner while he was sitting and without offering any kind of warning, both also deemed inappropriate. To Northerners, the attack was proof of exactly what Sumner's speech had been trying to convey that a shadowy slave power conspiracy was operating the government in unfair and, in many cases, violent ways. Southerners were hot-headed, absurd, impossible to compromise with, and slavishly dedicated to protecting the institution of slavery. Northerners looked at the exchange and saw Sumner as a northern man finally ready for bold action. They wanted more. They would get more, just not from politicians. Instead, the real example of Northern political violence came in the form of a zealous anti-slavery crusader and soon-to-be martyr, John Brown. Indeed, just two days after Preston Brooks caned Charles Sumner, John Brown led a small force made up mostly of his own sons onto the homesteads of several pro-slavery settlers near Pottawatomie Creek in Kansas. They pulled five men out of their homes in the middle of the night and hacked them to death with broadswords. The event caused immense debate, but was also sort of folded in along with the rest of the violence taking place in so-called Bleeding Kansas. But just three years later, Brown undertook another act of political violence in his raid on the federal arsenal at Harper's Ferry, Virginia. That raid was funded by northern abolitionists, eager for a man of action, not just a man of bold words like Charles Sumner, but one ready to wield political violence in the ways that southern men always had to great effect. After Brooks's attack on Charles Sumner, northerners felt like they were continually the ones bringing a knife to a southern gunfight. Maybe with someone like Brown, who met Southern readiness to use deadly force with his own deadly force, the slave power might finally be checked. We know that's not exactly how it played out. Brown's raid was largely a failure, and he was quickly arrested and hanged. Northerners saw even this as evidence of the slave power. While Southerners used violent action to meet their ends in Washington, abolitionist violence was decried as terrorism. But in a way, John Brown's final words were prescient in their reminder that the problem of slavery would never go away without political violence. I, John Brown, am now quite certain that the crimes of this guilty land will never be purged away, but with blood. Mm Mm-hmm. 
So go out and get yourself a Hamilton soundtrack. Oh, and I should say that a lot of this episode was, you probably could already tell, drawn from Joanne Freeman's books, Affairs of Honor, and the new one, um, The Field of Blood, which are both fantastic and I highly recommend them. And there are other books that I mentioned as well. Of course, Ron Chernow's biography of Hamilton, which I will put in the show notes. Wonderful. So thank you for listening. Be sure to give us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen so that we can be found by future fans of the Dig History podcast. Uh, You can follow us on Twitter or Facebook. Twitter, we're dig underscore history. And Facebook, we're dig history pod squad. Indeed. And, um... That's it. <laughs> All right. Don't, Bye. Don't fight. Don't fight. Hug. Oh, Bye. Yeah. Hugs, not duels. Bye. This podcast was produced by the historians of Dig, Elizabeth Garner Masaryk, Sarah Hanley Cousins, Marissa Rhodes, and me, Averill Earls. Thanks for listening. Undoubtedly, the Hamilton Burr, Hamilton Burr, Hamilton Burr. Is that, is that, am I saying that right? Hamilton Burr. Hamilton Burr. Yeah. Okay. Hamilton correctly interpreted it, interpreted it, interpreted it, interpreted it. uh. I didn't mean to like heave a sigh dramatically there. It was just like very, I was having a Marissa breathing problem. I've literally never heard this story before. How is that possible? You know how. But, like, I knew this story when I was, like, 10. (laughs) Like, it's just, like, a thing that people know, that Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr. It was a commercial. You don't remember that commercial? Where the guy was, like, for $10,000 on the radio, there's, like, a famous... It's, like, a guy sitting in his room, and he had the radio on, and he was, like, okay, today's trivia question for $10,000 is who killed Alexander Hamilton in... The duel or whatever. And the guy was the caveman? I think no, I think it was a peanut butter commercial. No. Because he was he like looked around his room and and he had like all of this memorabilia, this like Hamilton Burr memorabilia, like he had the pistols, you know, and he was like trying to call, but he was like, because he had so much peanut butter in his mouth. That was the whole commercial. Nope. So you must have encountered No idea what you're talking about. (laughs) Okay. Cut all of this out. (laughs) No, this is going to make it into the the last episode. (laughs) It's going to have to make it into the blooper reel. Bloops. Keep keep my drama going. (laughs) Undoubtedly. Maybe not that much drama. Okay. Tone it back. Tone it back.